Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Full Court Press has the latest news and opinions from men's and women's college basketball. Our hosts are John Fanta, who calls games all around the country for Fox Sports and others, and Kim Adams, an analyst for Fox and ESPN, and a former D1 baller who never saw a three-point opportunity she didn't like. If you don't believe me, check her Twitter page. Take it away, guys. It's Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams on this Tuesday, August 25th, 2020. Today's guest... Sam Vicini from The Athletic. He is their NBA draft insider, their expert. You can find him at theathletic.com with periodic mock drafts. This is his season. With an October draft this year, we took a deep dive on LaMelo Ball, why his ceiling could be the highest in this class. The sleeper picks in this class, a couple of Florida State Seminoles to watch out for. Demi Avdija, the international prospect, how would he compare to Luka Doncic? That was an interesting conversation as well. And who are the Knicks going to pick at number eight? We know Knicks fans are fatigued, frustrated, not happy. Well, there's a couple of prospects, and at the eighth spot, we'll see if they can find a point guard. But first, the intertwined NBA college storyline of the last couple of days is clear. Could Jay Wright go to the Philadelphia 76ers? He's led Villanova to two of the last four national championships. Nobody's won more than Jay Wright in college basketball over the last seven years when you combine records. Let me tell you my take on this situation. Jay Wright, if he wanted to go to the NBA, he would have done it by now. If he were to go to the Philadelphia 76ers, I think it would have happened by now. The counter argument is, well, they've they've kept Brett Brown. Brett Brown's been their coach. They haven't explored other options. Jay Wright plays at the Wells Fargo Center. Villanova and the 76ers have full access to one another. They're connected with each other and using the same venue. Villanova doesn't always play there. But the point is, being in Philadelphia, you've got the connections. I think if there were a lot of interest after what Jay Wright's done, the job is his if he wanted it. But I'm going to go back to the 2016 Final Four. Was covering Villanova at the Final Four. Actually, excuse me, the 2018 Final Four. 2018 Final Four in San Antonio. Jalen Brunson is in a back hallway. National Player of the Year. It's, a me, it's player media availability that afternoon in San Antonio. Jalen Brunson has nobody around him. He's in a back corner of a hallway. So I go up to him. I start talking with him. And I said to him at one point, you know, Jay Wright, 
NBA? Like, do you think that, that he would want to go to the NBA? This was his response to me. He said, Jay Wright wants to be what John Wooden has been to UCLA at Villanova. He said that Jay Wright loves what he has at Villanova and isn't going anywhere. Jalen Brunson was a player who was so incredibly mature and focused. That always stood out to me every time he hit the floor. And that's why he won as many awards as he did. That's why he won a couple of national championships. That's why he's in the NBA. He didn't say a whole lot to the media. Those words, though, they spoke volumes. And they said to me, Jay Wright's not going anywhere. Not that I thought he would, but when his own player says that, that when he was getting recruited, he realized that Jay Wright was going to be at Villanova and loved Villanova, and it wasn't tongue-in-cheek. Jay Wright is not going to leave a throne that he has untouchable power in. This is the greatest era of Villanova basketball in the program's history. And they are not slowing down. They might be the best team in the sport this upcoming year. They have one of, if not the best recruiting class in the country heading into next year. Could have their best recruiting class in program history. Multiple four-star commitments. Some uh, some projections have them as five-star commitments. Villanova basketball and Jay Wright, it's a marriage hand-in-hand. Hand. If he was going to spring to the NBA, I think he does it back in 2018 after he wins a second national championship because then you say to yourself, what more is there for me to do? And there would be teams interested. He has a blue blood. They're in the Big East where they have control of that conference. It is still Villanova and everybody else. Because when you get to the level they've gotten to consistently, they deserve that type of categorization. Jay Wright is at Villanova. He's home in Philadelphia at the Pavilion. Not with the 76ers. And that's nothing against the Sixers. Nothing at all. It's just there is a happy marriage there. And I think you could argue that there isn't a coach who is in a better situation in college basketball than Jay Wright at Villanova. Let's talk NBA draft with the athletic Sam Vecini. He does a terrific job covering the NBA draft and a lot of basketball over at the athletic. It's Sam Vecini who joins us this week on Full Court Press. And Sam, as we turn the page to this 2020 draft, how good is this draft class as it stands in your mind right now? Uh, not great at the top, I would say. I don't really have a whole lot of faith in the highest end prospects. Like, there's no Zion Williamson, there's no Luka Doncic, there's no DeAndre Ayton. I think that you know, LaMelo Ball, you can maybe make a case, is like in the same tier as someone like a Markel Fultz was. But I would probably, frankly, take Markel Fultz over LaMelo Ball. And uh, I know that Markel has not ended up necessarily being incredible, but I think that 
that kind of helps put into perspective just while a lot of these guys are really talented and have potential to be all-stars at the highest end, I think that there are also some very real questions about the upside uh, and the floor of some of these guys in terms of what happens if it doesn't all work out? What happens if their development gets off track in some regard? Uh, what happens if Anthony Edwards decides he doesn't want to play defense for the rest of his life? Like, I think that there are some real real worries there in regard to the upside of this draft and uh, particularly some worries in regard to the floor. Who goes number one and why? Oh man, putting me on the spot within three minutes of us recording Fanta. This is unbelievable. Uh, I'm going to say, I think it depends on who ends up with the pick because I think that Minnesota has it now and it wouldn't totally stun me if they moved it. Uh, if it's Minnesota, I'm going to say it's Anthony Edwards. I think he's the favorite. Uh, he fits them from a roster perspective the best, and there isn't really like a no-doubt number one overall pick in this class. Uh, you could maybe make a case for LaMelo Ball if they really wanted to go crazy. I don't think I would even consider James Wiseman at the number one overall spot, given the fact that they have Carl Anthony Towns, uh, if Minnesota keeps it. But – Man, I think a big portion of the order of this draft is going to be dependent upon the order of the team selecting. And the way that the lottery shook out, I think that there are a lot of different trade options that are going to be available to teams like Minnesota, Golden State, et cetera. Golden State, not your typical team picking in the two slot. If you are Steve Kerr and Bob Myers in this situation, are you thinking about adding to the now with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson and company, or are you more geared towards the long-term? So that's a great question. I would probably try to trade this pick. Now, would I try and trade it for future value in regard to like, if I could get a 2021 pick because the 2021 draft is going to be very good. I think you can make a case that, there are anywhere from three to seven players that I would take at number one in this class uh, over any of these guys. So if they could do like a future value deal where they end up with something in the 2021 draft, in the 2022 draft, where they can actually maneuver around the board in the future and maneuver some of the contracts they have and maneuver some future draft capital, such as the 2021 Minnesota pick they acquired for D'Angelo Russell or one of these picks they could potentially acquire for number two. I think that there is some real value there in potentially trading out for future value. I also think there's real value in trading out for a good player who can help them right now. Could they go out and get... Uh, and Aaron Gordon and something else? Could they go out and get uh, someone else who is a really good basketball player? Like, could uh, could they orchestrate a three-team deal with Brooklyn to where they end up somehow with Karis LeVert? Like, I, I don't know. Like, I think that there are going to be a lot of options on the table for them that make it really interesting in regard to the direction that they end up going. We talk about this class as a whole and the confidence level at the top of it. It's not in a high place <laughs> in the middle of the first round. Yeah. Who could be the Donovan Mitchell of this draft? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I really like Kyra Lewis quite a bit. Uh, six, three guard out of Alabama, uh, really electric speed. 
in the open court and has really improved in regard to his decision-making and the way that he reads defenses as a playmaker in the half court. Uh, also a good shooter, can play both on and off ball. That's the guy that I look at. I have him a little bit higher than everyone else. I have him at nine personally on my board, but I understand that there are going to be you know differing cases for sure across the board on Kyra. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of a few other guys. A lot of teams really like Patrick Williams out of Florida State. Didn't start at Florida State this year, but someone that, you know, played some point forward in AAU basketball and in high school. And it's just enormous. Like, I don't know if you've, uh, you know, been around Patrick Williams at all, John, Amen. but this dude is enormous. <laughs> like his shoulders, uh, just his length, like every, he is the kind of frame that is really going to fill out as he matures and grows in for, into his body from being an 18-year-old, he's still 18 years old, despite the fact that the season ended 45 years ago, to uh, the time that he's 24 and 25 years old. Like, that's six years down the road, and his frame's going to mature really, really well. And I think that a lot of NBA teams are looking for guys like Patrick Williams who, uh, you know, are physically developed now but are going to grow into being just ridiculously strong human beings. A sleeper that I've had – and. Look, now he's hopping up in the top 10. I've seen him in the teens. These things range. But his Florida State teammate in Devin Vassell, just another guy that has all the intangibles. And now you're looking to see if those averages that he had in college were just figures as a result of playing for Leonard Hamilton in Florida State. And if we're going to see him spring, what are the pros, the cons when you look at his skill set? Yeah, you know, Florida State really does spread it out, kind of like you said. Uh, they're never going to have a guy that's averaging, you know, 18, 20 points a night. That's just not the way that their offense works, and it's not the way that Leonard divvies out minutes down there. In Devin's case, he's a great defender, and he's a great shooter. Where my – and that, those are things that fit in the NBA across the board now. They're, every single team could use a Devin Vassell-style player. Where my questions come up, have to do with the fact that his jump shot off the dribble is very elongated. It takes him a while to get it off. I think that he is probably going to struggle to be a pull-up shooter, especially early in his career, until he figures out how to quicken that release a little bit. And then again, uh, his ball handling still isn't elite. Like, he can attack a closeout and get to the basket in a straight line. And, you know, he can make, like, a relative read, but he's not really reading, like, backside defenders and making – awesome kickout passes after he attacks a closeout uh, because a defender comes at him super hard. Like he's a guy that is basically making like a primary read and is either attacking in a straight line, shooting after he catches the ball or passing and just making that singular read. So I think that that's ultimately why I see him as more of a guy that's going to be a really good starter in the NBA. He's going to play in the league for a while. I don't really see him being like a star level player though. Having said that, in this draft, I agree with you. I've been high on Devin Vassell for a while. Like, I think that's 100% a lottery pick. And I think that if he goes number eight, number nine, number 10, something in that range, I think it's totally reasonable to take that guy there. Let's look at the team with the eighth pick in this draft, the New York Knicks. And every mock right now has them geared towards a point guard. So if you had to choose between one, Iowa State's, Tyrese Halliburton or the international prospect Killian Hayes? 
Yeah, it's a great question. I would venture, given the CA connection of their front office, they will probably gear toward Tyrese Halliburton, who is a current CAA uh, client. But man, for the Knicks, what would I do there? I think that's a really good question. I might default to Killian Hayes for them, despite the fact that I have Halliburton slightly higher on my board, because I think that they need someone who can be a ball handler and a lead guard. I see Tyrese Halliburton more as like a guy who leads you in transition, can grab and go on the break. But in the half court, he's going to be more of an off-ball guy, I think. He's going to be more of a guy who spots up and knocks down catch-and-shoot jumpers, attacks closeouts, and then maybe takes like second side pick and rolls and makes reads based off of that. He's an incredibly intelligent player. I don't mean that as like a – um, as a knock against him necessarily. I just think it's more where his skill set lies. In uh, Killian Hayes, I think he has much better ball handling ability. His handle isn't as uh, high. He is his one hand dominant as Tyrese Halliburton is. Killian with his left hand, Tyrese with his right hand. Both of those guys are really going to have to improve that. But I think that Killian plays with better pace and change of tempo on the ball and is a better pull-up shooter, which is going to allow him to play more of a lead guard role, which is more of what I think the the Knicks need. The play of Luka Doncic, Sam, has everybody wondering where the next Euro star is going to come from. And the hotbed name is Denny Avdija. And the Cavaliers at five, that's who you have right now uh, where he goes at five to Cleveland. What do you think he brings to the table? Yeah, I will say I don't think Denny's Luka. I think he's a good player. Uh, I've had like a couple people from, you know, Israel that have covered him overseas who think he's that level and have told me that like they think he is, uh, you know, a potential long-term all-star. I don't really see that in his case because I don't really see him as that level of shooter. Luca's body mechanics and his ability uh, to accept contact. He was the best finisher among any wing in the NBA this season or any guard in the NBA this season. Anyone who is not a center that's just finishing way above the rim, right? Uh, his ability to accept contact and play through it and finish through it is exceptional. His ability and body mechanics to uh, get to that step back pull up is absolutely exceptional. He is someone that is very, uh, a very special case. In Denny's case, he's a bit more of like a point forward type, whereas Luca is more of a point guard, right? His ball handling isn't quite as good, but he can run some pick and rolls like we used to see, you know, like a Lamar Odom run, right? Like Lamar could accept pick and rolls. He could be the screener or he could be the ball handler in ball screen settings, right? I think that's more what you're talking about with Denny. He's a really good passer. He sees things happen. He reads the second level really well. Um, and he's, a little, he's more athletic than what I think he gets credit for. Like people think of these European guys, they're coming over with like an athletic deficit in some regard. Uh, we're used to, you know, Luka Doncic and Nikola Jokic now. Denny's not really that. Like Denny has some actual athleticism that he plays with and plays with real speed and tempo. So I think he's just kind of a different guy. And I think he's going to be an interesting point forward type uh, for a team to look at. And he'll go somewhere in the top. Uh, six, I would venture. To follow up on Luca, Sam, <laughs> what do you remember hearing about him when sure. you were going through your mocks that now sticks out to you when you're watching him do what he's doing? Yeah. A lot of NBA executives overthought it 
a little bit, I think. And look, like I'm not infallible in this. Like I had him and DeAndre Ayton in the same tier. Like I thought they were both future all-stars. Like I'm, I had DeAndre Ayton at number one though. Like I'm not sitting here saying that like I was, I don't even think like I'm wrong. Clearly DeAndre looks good for Phoenix. He averaged 19 and 12 and two this year, two blocks a game. Like he's really good, but he's not Luca. Luca looks like, you know, the next coming of uh, a top 10 player in basketball history. So what I remember is teams questioning the upside a little bit too much. I thought Uh, they thought that like, Oh, he's not athletic enough enough to get separation. I didn't really see that as an issue. There were also some worries about his habits. Um, He was a guy that ate like a lot of fast food off the court and like, didn't like take the utmost care of his body while dominating for real. Right. And I think that teams overthought that a little bit. Like imagine you get that guy to P3 out in Santa Barbara, right? He's going to get better athletically. You get him on an NBA strength and conditioning program. He's going to get better in terms of his body. So yeah, I think that executives generally overthought Luca. Some didn't. Like I talked to some that were just like this guy's number one overall pick, but there were more people across the NBA than you would think that had some very real questions about Luka Doncic, which is uh funny looking back and is strange looking back given the fact that he was a teenager that won the freaking MVP of Euro League, which is the second best league in the world. But you know, it, that's the way it was back then. The fact that he had such a liking for fast food just increases his likability factor. <laughs> Correct. He's, he's, he's a terrific human. Like Luka Doncic uh, brings so much fun to basketball. I'm so glad that someone that is like 6'8", 225, 230 pounds. I mean, he's in good shape now. He's in much better shape than he was when he played for Real. But, like, he's not the most wildly explosive player. He just plays at his tempo. He knows how to get to his spots. And um, his best skill is the ability to, like, decelerate and then reaccelerate and change tempos in such an unbelievable way. Uh, No one else really other than maybe James Harden can do it that way. And and he is – James Harden might be the best scorer, like, in NBA history. So, like, putting Luka in that conversation is is pretty special. And then you throw in the fact that he's – probably one of the two best passers in the NBA along with LeBron James. And it's a, it's a special group of skills. We had Rob Doster on a couple weeks ago. No, you didn't tell me this. <laughs> wasn't, no. in the, wasn't in the pre-show email. Uh, he said that he believes LaMelo ball has the highest ceiling of anybody in this draft. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Um, if you want like a player comparison, like I've been saying, he's like kind of bigger, taller Rajon Rondo almost. Um, I think he has more potential to shoot than Rajon does as well, or ever did. Uh, his he's comes from like a scorer's mentality. Like for people who don't remember, he was a guy that played with Lonzo and Leangelo, his two brothers, when he was like 15, 14, 13 years old, uh, playing U17 AAU. And his responsibilities were to be like the chucker. There are all these videos out there of him being, you know, my height, like 5'9", five, 5'10", five, whatever he was, and shooting these like 35-foot bombs when he can't even lift the ball over his head. And from there, it's crazy to watch the way he's developed because 
he's developed into, in my opinion, one of the better passer playmaker types that I've evaluated uh, in the NBA draft process. He is unbelievable as a live dribble passer. And what I mean by that is he's someone who can actually get separation. He can break down defenders, get into the middle of the defense. And then from there, one-handed right or left hand right off of his bounce. He doesn't need to stop and pick it up with both hands. He can just whip that thing with one hand and get it to an open shooter immediately. And that's the kind of skill set that's really valuable in today's NBA. Uh, I look at him and I I think he has a real chance to be uh, an all-star level guard. He is going to have to improve as a shooter, though, and his defensive decision-making, let's go with, uh, as terminology, is uh, porous. I watched every minute that LaMelo Ball played uh, this year in the NBL, and I think it counted like seven or eight times where uh, instead of tagging that backside roller like he's supposed to in pick-and-roll coverages uh, and stopping that guy from getting a wide-open dunk, he was just kind of wiping his shoes, right? Not really paying attention to what was happening uh, defensively whenever he wasn't on the ball. So he's going to have to improve his level of care on that end because NBA coaches, they aren't going to go for that. Like they're going to say, look, we can't play you if you're not even going to make an attempt to tag these backside rollers. You're not even going to make an attempt to be in the right position. In that regard, that's where the Rondo comparison has some flaws to it. I mean, Brayshawn Rondo is a defender. Right, yeah. I mean, he was an all-defense team member for three or four years. Uh, Now he's much less than that (laughs) since the knee injury, basically. Uh, Back in his last days in Boston and then the early days in Dallas, he hasn't been quite as good defensively since then. But early in his career, he was monster on defense. He was unbelievable. And, you know, LaMelo has showed some tools on that end. Whenever he's engaged, he does a good job of shooting passing lanes. He does a good job of using his hands to be disruptive. He can be a good defender if he wants to be. It's just literally in his brain. Like he needs to make that mental adjustment that he has to be engaged at all times. Is it not ironic and maybe this is off base, wouldn't be the first time that I am, that you had Lonzo Ball at UCLA, big brand school. I know that that brand has, has been affected recently. I think they're on their way back. There's no well, question John, they are. I don't, I don't know if you've heard this, but Mick Cronin is the coach of UCLA basketball. Yeah. It is it's wild. It's it just is. crazy. It is, because here's the thing. Mick Cronin is not a sexy UCLA coach necessarily. He is a damn good coach in the sport of college basketball. And what he's already done at UCLA is impressive. That turnaround this past year was impressive. They are certainly, they're more than on their way back and he's showing in the recruiting. I just, with, with the ball family, I just find it ironic that Lonzo is at UCLA. He's got access to LA studios. And on the flip side, you have, um, LaMelo coming into this draft and the general sports fan that's watching the draft is going to go, oh, LeVar Ball, you know, on draft night, not understanding the fact that this is the best of the balls yeah, and, and that he's got the highest ceiling of them and that it would appear that all that other drama that we saw a couple years back, that's, that's in the rearview mirror. Uh, 
We'll no. see on that end. We'll see. I, you know, like LaMelo was great this year. All, everyone I've talked to over in Australia has been like, look, uh, he came about it from a very professional approach. He was very mature. Uh, he worked like crazy over there. He was more than willing to do what he needed to do, right? Uh, how much of that was the fact that like LeVar wasn't over there all the time and causing ruckus. Like, I, I don't know. I mean, putting, putting LeVar in a room uh, whenever LaMelo is going to go in the top five of this draft, uh, it's, it's NBA teams have concerns, put it that way, about the way that LeVar will handle the coaching situation of whatever team LaMelo is drafted into. Just because if you remember, like, LeVar just destroyed Luke Walton to Jeff Goodman uh, during Lonzo's either rookie or second year. I can't remember which one it was. Uh, he just absolutely demolished him. And I don't think that's any – that's a situation that many coaches or front offices want to be in. So I would hope that LeVar understands that and kind of continues to do his other stuff on the side and let's LaMelo grow organically uh, because this year went great in Australia. And, um, you know, Jermaine Jackson was with him over there and he was great uh, with LaMelo. Like it, it was, it was a good spot. I thought, and you, you mentioned Mick Cronin earlier. Uh, it's funny. I was talking to someone uh, over uh, right before you called basically. And I was thinking like, I think Mick Cronin might be the best defensive coach in college basketball. Like, you, you can make a case for Tony Bennett. Like, you can make a case for Chris Beard, I guess. But, like, Mick Cronin is unbelievable as a defensive coach. Like, I'm pretty good with, like, tape breakdown and X's and O's. Like, I'm, you know, I, I like to think of myself as being one of the people who's, you know, among the best at it in the public sphere, right, with college basketball. But Mick Cronin, like that matchup zone, like that two, three, like hybrid that he was playing at Cincinnati, like, and part of it is because like, he's so good at adjusting to what the other team is good at. And so good at like implementing game specific game plans that work, man, he, I, I still haven't like totally figured out where the reads are every single, uh, on a possession by possession basis. He's un, he's unfathomably good as a defensive basketball coach. Excuse me, Joe from Syracuse's ears are ringing right now <laughs> on his patio somewhere because you just said 2-3 zone and Mick Cronin that he's the best defensive coach in the sport. It's, I mean, Jim, Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy Bayheim, man. <laughs> I can't, I can't with Jim. I, I can't watch their <laughs> offense anymore. I can't do it. <laughs> Sam, before I let you go here, when we look at, at this, these unprecedented circumstances, do you think that no combine this year and no real normal evaluation process, do you think that that affected kids who declared and were going in more? Or do you think that affected kids who ended up saying, I'm, I'm going back to college more? If, if that question makes sense. No, it does. I hadn't thought about it, but it makes sense. Um, it certainly affected kids that declared more um, and were trying to make a decision. Uh, you know, I, I talked to a few different players uh, in their representation that because they didn't have a chance to prove themselves in front of NBA personnel and felt like they couldn't go into workouts and 
just couldn't get a good enough gauge of where they stood in the NBA draft process, as well as had no real ability to move up draft boards by impressing some of this NBA personnel. They felt like they had to go back in many ways. Like they, they just felt like maybe they could have started their career in unfavorable terms, like getting a two-way contract or going to camp, going to Europe, something like that. Like they could have gone about it that way, but decided ultimately the college basketball was better for them uh, because they didn't get a chance to go into these workouts and get a real sense of where they really stood. Sam, one more for you here. It's the question that everybody's talking about now, turning the page to college basketball season. When do you think we see the 2020-21 campaign, if there is a 2020 included in that at all? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. I personally don't see it happening until at least the, like, other students go away, like on Christmas break or something like that. Like, I know that a few people have mentioned Thanksgiving break as like a potential uh, option. Not everyone sends their students away though, like for all of December, right? So I think they're gonna have to come up with like a uniform method of how this works. Otherwise it has no chance of working. Uh, on a nationwide level. I think that that's the biggest thing. They have to figure out how to do this on a nationwide level. Most of the coaches I talk to, I'll just be honest with you, most of the coaches I talk to would prefer just like starting in January and playing like more of a uh, elongated season and then going, you know, May Madness and, you know, hoping that they can get everything done. Uh, and building in kind of breaks to do testing and everything that they need to do. But I think it's up in the air, but like some of the dates I've seen thrown around, like the fact that the NCA is even considering November 10th still, like the date that the season was originally supposed to start. That's insane to me. Like they need to like figure out, they need to not have that option in the mirror. Like it's just not a realistic option. I don't think, I mean, do you, when you talk to people, like, do you see that as a realistic option? I don't see that as a realistic option. I think there's too many things that have to be figured out. Yeah. I just don't think you're, you're playing games on a college campus. If you're not doing it, I know that some football conferences are trying to do it, but college basketball has to have a level of uniformity with it. And they do because Dan Gabbitt is at the helm and is yeah. transparent enough that there's leadership in place and you feel like the sport's on a page. Uh, that page might be turning quickly, and I don't think you're going to start the season on time. I think you're going to see potentially mini bubbles, if not conference bubbles of play. Yeah. You're not starting November 10th. Could you capitalize on the window from Thanksgiving to Christmas? Yes. But remember the logistics. Remember the finances of the situation. You might be in a predicament where the earliest you can start is January 1 or somewhere around that, and it might just make the most sense to do that. We'll see if that follows through. But yeah, when I talk to coaches, you do get the sense they're not starting on time. Some coaches do think there's a window between Thanksgiving and Christmas. There is a window in which student athletes are not, you know, deep into classes. They'll take their finals and have a couple weeks. But like you just said, there are some campuses who are going to have kids, whether they're international or whether they're from a different state that are on that campus longer, who knows what's happening. I think, again, we have to see here, too. If college football, if those leagues that play, if they have some level of success or we see some of that take place, if you see college football, the the teams that are trying to play, crash and burn badly, 
The remaining 1% of November 10th is going out the window. And at that point, you're staring at, hey, let's hope we can start up in January. When you think about what all this is going to cost, Sam, and the predicament that the sport's staring at, you probably can't drag it out for four or five months. It's not realistic. Your best bet might be able to do it January and February. And if you're in bubbles or if you're in mini bubbles, I think you're you're staring at a, a point of, for student athletes, you're probably looking at a month to 45 days max that they can be in that type of situation before you get into those amateurism discussions and those questions. That's just a situation you're staring at. Yeah, I think a big part of this is going to be the NCAA is going to have to make a decision on what matters more to them, playing this season or maintaining the amateurism facade, right? Like they're, they're going to have to figure out which one is more valuable here. It's going to be well, fascinating because I'm not sure which one it's going to be. Well, it sounds as if the former needs to happen for their livelihood as right. we know it. So in that case, answer A is more likely, but you might get college presidents who end up saying, uh, we're not going to sacrifice our identity and our morals or our standards I mean, for that. We already had Larry Scott come out and say bubbles aren't feasible. Uh, and then Dan Gavitt was smart enough to come out and be like, no, like bubbles are feasible. Like, Why do you do think it. he did that? Why do you think Larry Scott did that? He's not very good because he's not very good at his job. Like we can just be honest about Larry Scott, right? Like this is a guy who has cost his university's money across the board. Uh, he is someone that uh, just doesn't, doesn't operate in a manner that leads to coherent decision-making uh, and leads to uh, decision-making that is best for the member institutions involved. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. Uh, Larry, Larry Scott's not very good. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, it's just another situation. We, we talk about the fact that we haven't had like college games to cover. People have asked me this question. Well, how have you stayed busy or what's new? Well, now we do have NBA plus. We have some semblance of basketball, right? We have an NBA draft that, weeks of coverage goes around and oh by the way the state of the sport is kind of hanging in the balance not just in a pandemic transfer rules nil all kinds of things there's no lack of storyline in the sport of of basketball and that's why you can follow sam Vecini for it day in day out at sam underscore v-e-c-e-n-i-e on twitter follow him at the athletic he's got a podcast as well the game theory podcast he's got you covered sam thanks for the time Yeah, thanks, John. Appreciate it, man. Another episode of Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is in the books. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for spending some time with us. Thanks also to our producer, Mike Lieber, as well as Bruce Bernstein for all of their help. Tom Phillip edits the show. We always appreciate his contributions. Check out our other Pure Hoops media shows. That's Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Aaron Berlin and Otto Strong. It drops each Wednesday. Each Thursday, Monica McNutt and King McClure drop by with buckets, boards, and blocks. Every Friday, it's the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. The Mike Wise Show drops each Wednesday, and we'll be back every Tuesday with Full Court Press. Please check out all of our shows, subscribe, download them, rate, and review them. But most of all, enjoy. See you next week on Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.